preaching of God's Word is in verses 53 through 58. This particular moment where Christ, having presented this need for faith, and has pressed it so clearly that He has said, you must eat My flesh and drink My blood. The Jews, you'll notice in verse 52, they strive among themselves. There is this stirring up of dissatisfaction and even angst and anger with this thought. And the question that they ask is, how? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now notice more carefully his answer. Because he doesn't answer that question. But rather, he doesn't relent from pushing the main point that there must be this eating and drinking. If there, if there is not, there's no life. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth My flesh and drinketh My blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For My flesh is meat indeed, and My blood is drink indeed. He that eateth My flesh and drinketh My blood dwelleth in Me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent Me, and I live by the Father, so he that, cause, that eateth Me, even he shall live by Me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Brethren, throughout the Scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, we see that man is saved by God's grace. This is most apparent. We don't need to take time today on that, as we have on other occasions and will, as the Lord gives us life in the future. But we see as well that the Scriptures teach that this grace that saves, saves through faith alone. And yet it's here where people can make a fundamental error. So, of course, they err when they reject salvation by grace alone. And they err when they reject salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet, even embracing that form of sound words, there can be the missing of the fundamental point of the nature of saving faith. What is saving faith? Well, notice in the text before us, we find Christ uh, most clearly expressing this need for personal faith unto salvation. The text contains a more, most forceful exhortation for each individual to embrace Jesus Christ personally. Notice the text. In the first verse that's before us, verse 53, Christ states the necessity of this. So you'll note again the question, how can this man give us his flesh? You will try in vain to find him answer that question. He doesn't answer that question as he often avoids the wrong question in other places. Instead, he forces the attention to the main thing. What is it? Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Unless you do this, there's no hope for you. What's he saying? It's fundamentally and most certainly necessary. You must partake of the body and blood 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, throughout this passage, verses 53 through 58, as well as the surrounding context, it's quite clear what he means, as we'll see. But notice as well the text gives promises. He says, for instance, whoso eateth and drinketh. Notice as he speaks of that, verse 54, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, speaking of the blessings that come by this personal faith. And likewise, he, throughout this passage, is testifying of his coming death. When he's speaking of flesh and blood, children, you have that. You have flesh, you have blood. Sometimes you've cut yourself and you've seen your blood come out of your body. Well, here is the idea of the absolute separation of the same. And when does that take place but at death? Throughout, Christ is speaking of his death. He's already mentioned that I will give myself for the life of the world. He's speaking of his life being taken from him. Not taken from him, but better yet, given by him in death for the saving of sinners. You'll notice as well in the text, there is a powerful and most intimate metaphor, eating and drinking. Now, even in this room, each of us knows the great difference between knowing there's food, seeing there's food, smelling there's food, wanting the food, and actually partaking of the food. And so at lunchtime here in this room, we often have antsy children. And what are they wanting? They're wanting to get to the food. Why? Because they're hungry. Now, none of the children and no adult would ever be satisfied with the word, well, just look at the food and be satisfied. And no one would be content to say, well, I looked at the food, now I'm filled. Because there must be the partaking of the food, the grabbing of the food, the eating of the food, the taking of the drink and drinking it down for our, our bodies then to be benefited. And you'll notice this is what Christ is emphasizing. There must be an actual eating and drinking, or that is, a partaking. That this is not a physical chewing that is mentioned. Notice that Christ has already made that plain. For instance, in verse 47 preceding, He says, leading into this, I say unto you, he that believeth on Me hath everlasting life. That expression is what's being explained. Because the whole promise in verses 53 and following is everlasting life. And so what he's using by way of eating and drinking is an image to make plain to us the nature of faith. And he does so as well. Notice in verse 35, Christ says, I am the bread of life. Notice this language. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. And so he's setting up for this great testimony. And what he's doing is he's saying, I'm not content with you to think that you must just acknowledge I'm the Son of God, I'm the Savior. That's not saving faith. I'm not content for you to think I'm a great person, I'm a great guy, I'm a great teacher, I'm a great prophet, I'm a great priest, I'm a great king. That's not saving faith. Moreover, I must be sure that you realize that you see that I'm the one who has come to die. That my flesh will be broken. My blood will be poured out. And it's that act, embraced, which then gives life everlasting. So this metaphor of eating and drinking 
is an expression to testify of the great personal taking of Christ unto oneself. Now let's also note that Christ is not here talking about the Lord's Supper. How do we know that? Well, it's chapters later that the Lord's Supper is established. This passage has nothing in itself to do with the Lord's Supper. But saying that, we should remember that the Lord's Supper has everything to do with this passage. What do we mean? Well, the Lord's Supper is that meal by which, through signs and seals, we think upon Him who was crucified, and we renew our faith in Him unto ourselves. So though this passage, Christ isn't saying, listen, whoso eateth my flesh at the Lord's Supper, and so on. No, He's not talking about that. He's talking about the personal taking of Christ by faith. And yet, we remember the Lord's Supper directs us to the personal taking of Christ by faith. And so the link is from the Lord's Supper to this passage, not from this passage to the Lord's Supper. Now, before we go further, it's worth to note that here before us is Christ showing us the necessity, the personal necessity of receiving Him by personal trust, taking Christ unto oneself. So children, young people especially, Think of this for a moment. It's not sufficient for you to sit there and think, I'm in church. It's not sufficient for you to be content and say, I know that Jesus is the Savior. It's not sufficient for you to say, I know that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. It's not sufficient for you to point to others and say, He's the Savior. It must be, as Christ is emphasizing, that each of you take Him as your Savior. And when this happens, we'll see blessings abound. So only those who take Christ personally by faith, trusting Him as the Savior crucified for sinners, only they have everlasting life. Now we should note that this is the same thing in different ways stated throughout the Scriptures. Think of Matthew 11 and verse 28. It's not the language of eat and drink, but think of that language, come unto me. There's a language of intimacy, drawing near to Christ, taking Him as one Savior. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, that's not as, as it were, difficult for us to understand, but it's the same essential point. It's not just that we say, well, He's the Savior. It's that there must be a personal coming to and embracing Him. Or you think of how Christ mentions this in the subsequent chapter, in John chapter 7, and there at verse uh, 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me. Do you see the link? The drinking is explained as believing. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And there's further commentary. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. You see, the imagery of eating and drinking is an image that is used to express the personal taking of Christ unto oneself. Children, I've seen this in you. I've seen this in your parents as well. That when you want food, you protect it. And you complain about it when others try to take it from you. Well, that's mine. I want it. 
It gladdens me, you know, it makes me happy, smile, there's sugar in it. It nourishes me, I'm, I'm starving, we'll say, you know, don't take my food. And what Christ is doing is He's leaning into that which we all know by experience physically. And He's saying, this which you know physically is what you must come to know spiritually. I need Christ crucified for sinners. And I must have Him unto Myself. Just as, of course, medicine does us no good as it is apart from us, but must be applied to us, whether by consumption or injection or application, rubbing on, so Christ must be applied to us as well. Well, let's look at two things before thinking on several applications. First, Christ's provision for life. And secondly, receiving Christ's provision for life. These two are quite clearly presented to us. Firstly, then, Christ's provision for life. Notice that Christ here says that He gives His life unto death. That's the purpose of blood and flesh. It's similar, and of course, as we've said, the Lord's Supper is founded upon this truth, the crucifixion of Christ. Christ says, this is my body which is broken for you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. And whenever we hear that language, we should understand what Christ is getting at. My death. I'm talking about my death. The world looks at this message and says, you know, can we get to happy thoughts? Can we get to better thoughts? Can we get to more joyous thoughts? Evading and missing out on this truth that this is the good news of the Scriptures. Why is that so? Why did Christ give His life unto death? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but don't ignore the fact and don't skip past the fact that Christ is here saying, my physical body, my humanity, body and soul, will perish. And of course, we have in each Gospel account the clearest testimony that that historically, truly, and physically happened. The Gospel writers spare no words to make it as abundantly plain as possible. Not only is it heretical to deny that Christ truly died, physically died, it is absurd to deny such a thing in the light of such clear historical documentation, many eyewitnesses, and indeed the very enemies of this Christ confirming the same. That on the cross, Christ died. And so think of this. It's recorded for us, right? The, the disciples come to uh, the ruler and says, we were craving Christ's body. Can we take His body down and give it the last aspect of respect by burying it? And what is the question? There's a wonder. Is it possible that He's already dead? And so a witness is brought in. The soldier asking, is He truly dead? The answer is yes. And of course, you have other things that are there. He bows his head. He gives up the ghost. We see that there's a spear thrust into his side and so that the separation of the fluids comes out as a token of his death. All of these things are there. He's buried for three days, bound up in winding uh, uh, death clothes as it is. All of this testifying that he's dead. Not to mention the simple fact that the word death is used repeatedly in the Gospel accounts in the epistles, 
and it's what is prophesied of him as well. Think of what we read in Zechariah 13, right? Awake, O sword, against uh, my shepherd, the man who is my fellow. Well, it doesn't take much mental exercise to consider that the judge appoints the sword not for a pat on the back, not for the scratching of the back, not for a paddle on the backside, but for the death blow to one who is sentenced unto death. The whole scripture is most abundantly plain that Christ came to die. One of the great thinkers of the church dedicated a whole book to answering this question, why the God-man? Anselm of Canterbury asks this question, why the God-man? Why did God become man? And the fundamental answer he comes to is this, as he searches the scriptures, he became man to die. That's why. And in fact, this is what Paul says, right, in Philippians 2. He humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, not just to suffer, not just to be an example, not just to show us how to get through tough times, though all of that is true, but fundamentally to offer himself in death. And this took place when on the cross his blood was poured out and his flesh was broken. So Christ gave his life unto death, but his provision for life is seen in that Christ gave his life in death as a curse. And this is where there's an importance uh, for our understanding. Notice the language that's all around this passage is that his body and blood is for others. There's this idea that it's in place of. There must be the taking of it unto oneself. Well, if we back up and think about what's being said, his death must be taken for mine. I must have his death. And this is what Christ has said more simply in preceding verses when he says, for instance, in verse 51, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That is, uh, in substitute, in place of uh, what the world deserves. Now, this is no statement of universal or unlimited atonement. Christ is simply explaining the substitutionary aspect of his death. And this is why Paul is able to say in Galatians, that he was cursed. How is he shown to be physically cursed? Well, the scriptures of the Old Testament explain that cursed is he who hangs on a tree. It's a sign that this one is under a judgment. And notice, Christ is nailed to a cross, which is made, of course, by the wood of a tree. The scriptures make much of this. So there is an external sign that he's cursed. And yet think about all of the attendant circumstances of his death. Children, we just had storms sweep through our area. And perhaps when you heard the thundering and the lightning and saw how dark it became in the middle of the day on occasion, there's a sense of things are uneasy. Things are not the way they should be. This is dangerous. We heard reports of hail falling in different parts of the land and people having to pull over because of all of the forceful winds and the hail that was dropping, there were outward signs, as it were, that things are dangerous. Well, God used that as well at the cross. Do you remember the plague of darkness in Egypt, which was a curse to Egypt? And yet, while Christ is on the cross, there were hours of such darkness as the world had never known. 
there was this attendant display that he is cursed. He cries out in this cry as we call it, dereliction, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? There's no breaking of the Godhead, but there's the withdrawing of all the sensible comforts and the manifestation of love that he in his incarnate state knew. He is under a curse. This tells us what kind of death he gave. In other words, he didn't give his life in death merely as a lesson. Now, we need not to overstate that because it does teach us how to suffer. It does teach us to give ourselves in service to others. But fundamentally, his death is about himself being made a curse. Children, in our day, there is almost an unwritten, if not written, rule that you shall not shame another person. Brethren, there's need to shame people on occasion. We don't mean that with a bitter thought and putting people in their place and puffing ourselves up. But for instance, children need to be shamed by their parents. This that you've said is unacceptable. This what you've done is not right. It's not shaming them to their demise. It's shaming them to their correction, right? And this happens, of course, when superiors in businesses give a review of their inferiors and they say, listen, the way you've gone about this is wrong. You need to do it this way. Now, they may be right or wrong, but the point is it's in the manager's or the CEO's purview to say, this is the way it needs to be done. You've not been doing it rightly. This needs to be corrected. That has a place. But this is not the shaming that fell upon Christ. He wasn't being corrected. He was being consumed. The wrath of God was being poured out upon Christ, consuming Him. Now, why is this so? He doesn't answer everything here. But it's implicit in verses 53 through 58. It's more explicit in preceding and following passages. But notice when he speaks of his flesh and his blood for you, that my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, as a living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat man and are dead, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. He's testifying that he's giving himself for his people. And this is why he's able to say, though this is offered freely to all, he in both preceding and after is able to say in verse 65, I say unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. So he calls forth men to this point. I am suffering as one who is suffering the vengeance of God on behalf of others. Here's one thing that means. The others for whom he's suffering deserve what he suffers. You catch that? This is a fundamental point that's true and needs to be reckoned with. You and I deserve the agony of the cross unendingly. You and I deserve the shame of the cross. You know, there's the undressing of America today, which is obscene. And, you know, people celebrate what ought to be private. But when we get our wits about us, we realize, you know, like nakedness is shameful in public. 
And what a shameful thing it is when the Jews and Christians and others in Nazi Germany were made naked and made to walk in uh, you know, all of their bareness before others. There was shame in that. What's the point? Christ was naked upon the cross. Christ was beaten beyond recognition upon the cross. Christ was shamed publicly in the eye of everyone upon the cross. And you and I deserve that. We deserve all of our shame publicly displayed unendingly and the guilt of that heaped upon us and the curse of that thrust upon us. That's what you and I deserve. And yet, brethren, we should note this. That's what you and I will get unless we receive the provision of what Christ holds forth. There's that last great day to which you and I are being ushered. And on that last great day, we will stand before, think of this for a moment, the whole world. And the whole world will hear of the recitation of our secret thoughts, of our idle words, of our public thoughts and public words and our actions in secret and private. And sometimes we think, well, no one's seen this, no one heard this, no one witnesses it. All the while ignoring that what is said in secret shall be shouted from the rooftop. That what is mentioned in idleness, and we say, well, I was just kidding or I didn't really mean it. God is recording and will display. Now for the Christian, praise God that for the Christian, they will, as our catechism summarizes the Scriptures, be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. That all of their sins will have the answer publicly displayed that this one who sinned is covered by the blood of the Lamb who died. And so what will happen? We can't understand this fully, but we can begin to get a sense of it that when our sins are displayed as covered by the blood of Christ, what will happen? But two things. One, our own souls will on that day be overwhelmed with gratitude to Him who suffered for us. And two, the whole world will see that Christ has answered for our guilt and shame. Especially when we realize this. Whether in the church or enemies of the church outside of it, when they stand before the judgment seat and all of their words and works, idle thoughts, careless words, everything is publicly displayed and they will depart into the shame of everlasting agony. And we'll see at that moment, think of this for a moment, we'll see that we have been guilty of far worse sins than many who will suffer in hell. But the difference is, we have taken Christ who provided His flesh and His blood for us, which is a cause for our unending rejoicing in heaven because we'll have witnessed those who refused Christ and died without Christ enter into the depth of wrath for their sins and we'll be entering into heaven for no other reason than that Christ had His body broken and His blood poured out for our sins. Brethren, there's tremendous wonder in this provision for life. And yet notice then, secondly, receiving Christ's provision for life. We have here particularly emphasized the act of receiving. How is it that we receive 
life. Well, we can lean into the imagery that Christ uses and we can say, how is it that you receive nourishment to your body? How is it that you receive the quenching of your thirst? How is it that you receive strength to your body? You know, we can look at this in basic ways. We can look at this at the most extreme levels. You know, when people ramp up their attention to strength and health and all these things, they start to dial in their nutrition. And they're particular about setting their schedule, their meal prepping. They're doing all of these things to make sure that they get their nourishment their body requires. And yet no one has to be involved in that to realize that if we want our hunger satisfied, we have to eat. It's as simple as that. Children know that. They don't know about carbohydrates, proteins, and fatty acids, and all of these things. They know their belly says, I'm hungry, and they know that food satisfies their belly. So they don't get satisfied with a mom or dad saying, let's just drive by the restaurants tonight. That's what we're doing for dinner. You know, what's your favorite restaurant? Oh, I love barbecue. Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to drive by every single barbecue place in a five-mile radius. And we're going to take in the smoke smell. And we're going to sit down and let our mouths start to water. And then we're going to go to the next one. The children would be driven insane by that. We would be driven insane by that. Because there's no actual receiving of what is needed to satisfy our hunger. And yet, brethren, this is the point. Lord's Day by Lord's Day by Lord's Day by Lord's Day. There are multitudes who are contented with a spiritual surveying of the crucified Christ and then going home and thinking, I'm okay. I'm satisfied. Why are you satisfied? Because I heard about Christ and I know He's the Savior. Well, again, notice Christ's statement when He says, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink His blood. Ye have no life in you. This raises the instant question, do I have what Christ is describing? What's He describing? He's describing this receiving of Christ Himself. And so we think, for instance, in fact, we can't actually avoid the ways we describe this act of faith. So think about how we describe it. It's borrowed all from the Scripture. We talk about faith as coming to Christ. To come is a local, a physical idea. We're separated, we come to. We talk about uh, embracing Christ, taking hold of Christ. These are physical descriptions. Christ here says eating and drinking. In the next chapter, He speaks again of drinking. Elsewhere, He said of drinking. He speaks of receiving. Think of that language, receiving. He's using all of these tangible ideas to place before our understanding that it's not as it were just acknowledging that He is the Savior, but it's a, how can we avoid it? It's a taking of Him. It's a receiving of Him. It's an eating and drinking of Him. It's an embracing of Him. Think of the language of resting in Him. All of this is describing that spiritual act of taking Christ as mine. Now, there's tremendous mystery, of course, in this, but we need not to get lost in the pretended difficulty of that mystery. It's as simple as realizing, I must have Christ. How do I have Christ? Well, I don't have Christ only by knowing about Him, though I must know about Him. 
I don't have Christ only by agreeing with Him, though I must agree with Him. I must have Christ by the actual receiving of Him saying, I take you as mine. Now think of this for a moment. In the most important act that changes relationships forever among men, it's done by the words, most of the time, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife. I take you to be my lawfully wedded husband. It's a word. And what's the word? It's I take. Now we can get lost, like, what am I taking? How am I doing this? But we all know at the instant moment. You know, Augustine says everyone knows what time is until they're asked to explain what time is. The same can be said about faith. Everyone knows what faith is until they have to try and explain it. Well, that needs, of course, attention, but we shouldn't miss out on the simplicity that it's a seeing what Christ says He offers and a saying to Christ, I take that for me. I take you for me. This requires, as we'll see, His offer because we can't take that which He doesn't offer. Right? That's stealing. That's unjust. So if I go into a hardware store and I say, well, you know, I need this tool, but I don't have the money, but I'm going to take it. We could say, well, they offered it to me. No, no, they offered it to you with a cost. You have to pay this amount of money to take it. So is this receiving of Christ warranted? That is, do we have a right to take Christ as the crucified Savior for ourselves? Now, we see that we have such a warrant in Christ's words. But it's not the warrant that false teaching often offers. It's not the warrant that says Jesus Christ died for every single individual indiscriminately. Rather, it's in the promise, for instance, verse 54, whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood. It's proceeding in verse 51, I will give, my, give for the life of the world my flesh. He's giving it. He's offering it. He's holding it forth. This is why he's able to say, whosoever will, let him come to me. What's the warrant? It's not by me, persuaded as I am, that it's only the elect of God who will be eternally saved. It's only for the elect of God that Christ gave His life. That's not the warrant. The warrant is in Christ's clear and plain promise. That's it. Christ says, if you take me, you have everlasting life. And then we say, well, I've got a bunch of questions. How does this jive with that and this and the other thing? And Christ, as He's saying, is you're missing the point. I'm saying to you, who am true and faithful, if you take me, if you say yes to my offer, you have eternal life. Well, how does that work with this and that? No, no. Focus on what's focused before you. Christ is saying, I am the Savior. My flesh, my blood forgives sin. My flesh, my blood gives life everlasting. Well, how do I know if I'm old enough? How do I know if I understand enough? How do I know if my sins are convincing me enough of my need? How do I know? How do I... No, no. Christ says, pay attention. That's why He's hitting this again, 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 again. Sometimes we get bored with the repetition. And we hear so-called New Testament critics and scholars and they say, well, you know, 
this is just repetition. It belongs to this and that. It's just a rhetorical device. No. Christ is emphasizing this because we're prone to miss the point. He's saying, you need what I'm holding forth to you. And I'm saying, whoever it is that eats, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, child or adult, white, black, Asian, it doesn't matter, whoever it is, if you eat, if you take, if you say yes to what I'm holding forth, then you have everlasting life. Christ, in other words, must be received by personal trust. You think of the personal trust wrongly placed when people boarded the Titanic and how quickly their personal trust and all the assurances that they must have had in their own mind and the assurances of certification, all these things, and yet it was sunken. And all of its safety measures was over, were overthrown by foolishness on one part and presumption on another. And many lost their lives. They put their trust in what couldn't bear their trust. Is that the case for us? Well, let's back up and consider once more who it is that's saying we must trust. It's the one who has come down from heaven. It's the one against whom you and I have sinned. It's the one who has the right to say, here are the terms of reconciliation. Here are the ways by which you may be welcomed back into my fellowship. He is, who is mentioned later, the one that is the way, the truth, and the life. And He tells us, if you take Me, you will have everlasting life. What are the blessings that come by this receiving? Notice that Christ says it quite beautifully. After saying, if you don't, you have no life, verse 53, He says, if you do, verse 54, you have eternal life. Now notice something here. He doesn't say you will have it, but you actually have it. Why is that? Once again, it's because faith is taking Christ. And in having Christ, you have it all. All of it's yours. In other words, it's not just looking to the transaction of the cross, though it certainly focuses and embraces that. It's looking to Christ Himself, who is eternal life, that if I have Christ, I have everything. It's mine, by Him, by grace. To receive Him gives eternal life. Notice as well, fellowship with Him. Verse 56, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. All of these expressions testifying that what is received by receiving Christ is ultimately beyond compare. So think for a moment. What is the best feast for us? You know, we enter upon a holiday season in our nation and there's all sorts of expectations. You know, this meal and that. What are we doing? We've got plans, all these things. And good food will be served. We'll be satisfied with that. And you know, let's be honest, there's a headache that goes on the front end. And then there's the emptiness of the moment, knowing that it's going to end. And then there's life that greets us on the other side of such gatherings that says, you know, it was a passing moment. Now there's smiles, there's happiness, laughter. But in the end, it doesn't really satisfy. 
It's similar to children you've had before, perhaps poison ivy, right? You get it and you think, well, maybe I'll scratch it and then it will cause the itch to stop. But in fact, the opposite happens. The more you scratch it, it seems the more that it becomes inflamed, the more that you want to scratch it and continue. And that's what happens when we follow the itch of this world. Whether it's riches, whether it's pleasures, whether it's fame, whether it's family, whether it's friendships, whatever it might be, it can never satisfy. It can never give us what we actually need. And in the end, though we would be rich men and rich women and be able to say, I've got everything the world has to offer, on the last day, when we breathe our last, we'll hear the same words that were spoken to one before us. Thou fool, this day thy soul is required of thee. But brethren, think of the alternate. You know, in this life, whether we think of it or not, each of us is rich compared to the rest of the world. Some of you have seen pictures that our elder is sent from India, and you have to realize that that's not a snapshot taken of a very isolated thing. Those are but a little glimpse into this grand subcontinent of life of billions of people. You, in this world, every last one of you is rich. Now, you're not as rich as others in the neighborhoods that you know about in our area. We get that. You're not as well off as others in this city. We get that. But when you draw back and look at what we have in this life compared to the multitudes, the majority of everyone else in this life, you're rich. You can look online. You can look at these calculators of my wealth and you put in something as little as $20,000 a year. And you'll see that you're in the top you know, 10% of the global population of income, wealth, when that's factored for other places of wealth as well. Now, all of that said, we still feel our pinches, we feel our lack, we feel our need, we feel our want. And there are seasons when we look and we say, I don't know how next week is going to work out financially. I've got children to feed, I've got needs coming up. I've got medical issues that I need to pay for. My insurance won't cover it. I don't have insurance. Whatever it might be, how is this going to work out? All of that's real. And yet, brethren, all of it's more real for our brethren in other places who don't know where their next cup of water's coming from. All of that's more real for our brethren who don't know where their next meal is coming from. And that's their normal way of life. What's the point? Which one would you rather have? Would you rather have the poverty of this world or the riches of this world if necessarily you had to forsake the spiritual feast of Christ to have the physical riches? You say, well, that's a false choice. It is a false choice, we grant it. But it's a helpful focus What is it that I know I need? And what is it that my soul actually requires? And if I have that, what do I lack compared to what I have? What if I lose my job? That's difficult. What if my child gets sick and you know has this tremendously difficult uh, uh, illness? That's difficult. But what if in the midst of that, I have Christ? My family has Christ. I know we have Christ. Well, then we can face those things with this certainty. 
that whatever comes to me, Christ is with me, and I shall live forever. And why is that? It's not because we're better people. It's not because we've figured things out that they haven't figured out. It's because Christ gave Himself for us in our place and has promised to us His fellowship and everlasting life. Well, brethren, we close with points of application. And one is this. There must be the acknowledgement that salvation is not by agreeing with Christ as the Savior of the world, or even acknowledging that I need Christ. But faith that saves is a faith that takes Christ. And so let me ask you for a moment. Are you satisfied by the sight of the feast? Or are you satisfied by the feeding upon the feast? Are you satisfied, young people, Are you satisfied by knowing we go to church, we hear about Jesus, my parents teach me about Jesus, we're learning the catechism, we're learning the Bible, we're singing the Psalms, we're doing all these things, and I look at the world, and the world is totally lost, perilous, blind, dead, celebrating sin, I'm okay. No, you're not. Except you eat the flesh of Christ. Except you drink His blood. There's no life in you. None. You're dead in your sins. You're without Christ. And right now, if you were to breathe your last, you would perish justly for your sins and be consumed in hell forever. Because there's no life in you if you don't have Christ. None. Let me ask you adults. Are you content because your role The role has your name on it. Are you content because you're sitting in these chairs? You look at husbands and wives of others and you say, they're lost. At least I'm diligent in church. At least I'm here. I look at the books that I have on my library shelf. I look at the past experience that I've had. I know about Christ. I agree that He's the Savior. I know all of these things. I'm okay. You're not unless you eat and drink of the flesh and blood of Christ, Christ says there's no life in you. None. There's not even a whisper of it. There's not the smallest spark of it. You're dead in your sins. Period. By the authority of Christ said. Brethren, Christ says, whoso eats and drinks has eternal life. And so perhaps you say, I'm not as well educated as others. I don't have it all together like I should. I've not gotten it all figured out. Things are a mess in my home. They're a mess in my life. They're a mess at work. They're a mess all around me. Okay, that may be true. And it may be that that needs attention. But for a moment, focus. Because Christ says, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my life hath, has, right now, eternal life. say, but I don't know what I'm going to do about my job. I don't know what I'm going to do about my children. You know, children that are young become children that are old. What am I going to do with that? All of that's worth your thought on a different occasion. Because right now, Christ is saying, whatever else is true, if you have taken Christ, you have life. Everlasting life. But I don't feel it. I don't sense it. 
Christ doesn't say that we're always going to feel or sense it, but He does say that it's so. And it's needed for us to bring our feelings and sense into the truth of His Word. Whoso eateth, whoso drinketh, he that eateth, he that drinketh, dwelleth in Me, and I in him. Why? Not because you've got it together. Not because you know you could post your life on social media and everyone would say, wow, they've got it figured out. You know, They've got the pretty handwriting. They've got all the nice places in their house. They've got all that the world could offer. That's not why. It's not because you've got it figured out in your house with reference to catechizing and teaching and reading and worship and all these things which needed, which are needed. That's fine. But that's not why you have life. You have life only because of Christ who gave His life for you and you've taken it. This orients us, brethren, to our sweet consolation and peace which is only in Christ Jesus. Well, brethren, those of you who have so taken Christ, think for a moment. If He had not willingly given His life in death, your soul would have nothing to feed upon. And yet Christ willingly gave Himself that you would have life. We get in the Lord's mercies to remember this next week. And we come after a week of examining and working through things of our own soul and seeking the Lord, often with this sense of, what am I, how am I making sense of this? And yet our focus is to be upon Christ who gave Himself for us that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Would you stand with me for prayer?